0: Please turn in your Bibles, we're going to be turning to the book of Colossians, uh, where we are wrapped up in an interesting segment here, uh, the book of Colossians, uh, I'm, if you have the bulletin card in front of you, you'll be able to see that we're in the middle of a series. For those of you just visiting today, you can pick up pretty quickly and see that we're about halfway. Uh, we've been looking at, at uh, different relationships, and they're all listed there. Uh, but this is coming from Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 4. Today we're looking at chapter uh, 4, verses 2 through 6. So if you have your Bibles there, and we do have a few Bibles, but oftentimes the text will come up. Uh, Here at New Covenant, since we are a Bible-believing church, I always want to say that this is not only God's Word, but it is inerrant, infallible, and inspired in its originals. This is God's Word for us today. If you will, uh, as I said, turn to Colossians chapter 4, you're going to be able to see on my Bible here, it's page 1,254, and beginning verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open up a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, it's interesting there. He doesn't just quit, but he goes on to verse 6. This is 5 and 6. You walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's Word, and uh, as I said, we'll be opening it. If you uh, keep your Bibles open, uh, I, I, this, this is a part of our series in the book of Colossians, and there is some great encouragement here. Let me ask God to bless it. Lord, as the Word of God is opened before us like a meal, I pray that you might make us hungry, that we would be attentive and active listeners. Oh, Lord, I also pray that you would nourish us with this, that we may be more than just hearers, but also doers of the Word. These things we ask through the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Our church has set, I should say, our culture has set apart this day, this weekend, uh, to remember. Uh, They call it Memorial Day. Memorial Day is called a national holiday, but it is an interesting term that they use because the word holiday really means it's supposed to be a holy day. Now, some, some folks, especially those that have driven down here to the beach, uh, many people want it to be a holy day. Don't do anything else. Just enjoy some sun at the beach. I think there was some sadness when we had all those rain clouds come in last night and this morning. Uh, but as a pastor, I mean, I like Sundays. I actually like sunny Sundays, but it's always nice to have a full church. I'm grateful that there's a reason to come. Uh, But if you think about it for a moment, this is set apart as a holy day. But why? A lot of times we don't quite get it. But the reason why our nation, our culture has embraced the idea of remembering on Memorial Day weekend, it is not just to remember to get the food and get the beer or get whatever it is you're going to eat and drink. It is to remember the sacrifice. Abraham Lincoln said it so well in Gettysburg. If you remember in his 272-word speech that was written, I think, on the back of an envelope, he said it very interestingly there. He says, it is for us, not for them, to remember. To be dedicated to the unfinished work which they who have fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be dedicated. He says that these honored dead, that we would take increased devotion to the cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion. It's not just that we remember that they died, but it's to remember the cause for which they died. He says that we would highly resolve that these dead would not have died, and you know the rest, in vain. There's a purpose for it. People are not just going out there just so they can die. There is a reason that this nation, and then I liked how he put it, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from this earth. Each Memorial Day, we have an opportunity to gather. I'll call it Memorial Day Sunday. As we come here, there's lots of different times where I've taken you to scriptures, where I called, called you to look and where God says to remember. One of the greatest memorials is when the people of God, after the Deuteronomy passage, they end up crossing across the Jordan. Now, that Jordan crossing was a lot different than if you go over to Israel right now. The Jordan River is so tiny. It's just a mud puddle. It's, uh, it's not as big as it used to be. But back in the day when the water was flowing down to the Dead Sea, there was a a time when God stopped the water and let all two million people come through. Yes, he had amassed that kind of descendants from Abraham. Twelve tribes were coming, and they crossed the Jordan. And when they got to the other side, they were to get stones out of the Jordan and stack them up. Now if any of you go to the Bible Museum in Washington DC which I highly recommend you do you're going to see that there is a wonderful illustration of that and most people have never even taken notice to that memorial. God said, "Remember I am with you." It didn't take long before they forgot. And my fear is, is that unless we have these annual remembrances, we will forget. And the young people that are standing here, they're not even going to know anybody that served in those different wars and those different battles. But we're gathered here not on Memorial Day Monday, but on Memorial Day Sunday. And we're gathered here because God has set apart a time for us to remember. And the time that he told us to remember is not annually, but it's weekly. Have any of you ever thought about that? There is no lunar or solar reason why we have weeks. Science can't tell you why we have weeks. But I can tell you that God set it up that way. Six days you do your labor, and the seventh is the day of rest. And then once Jesus rose on the first day of the week, they called it the Lord's Day. You see it in the book of Revelation, that that's why you have this set apart. At the beginning of the week, you've turned your eyes towards Jesus. We call it the Christian Sabbath. And as we gathered on the Christian Sabbath, we don't gather just to have a pep rally, rah, rah, rah. We actually gather to remember. We remember that we serve a risen Savior. He's no longer dead because greater love couldn't have been shown, but he's no longer in the grave. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And all of those things happened as we were talking about Pentecost Sunday last week, that it was, it was basically 40 days until Jesus ascended after the resurrection, and then 10 more days until this, the power of the Spirit was unleashed there from the upper room. And the gospel has gone to the ends of the world, even crossing the ocean and reaching people in Lewis, Delaware. It's pretty exciting to see what Memorial Day actually attributes and how we as Christians don't have to run away from this. And I want to explain some of that today. Uh, I want you to know that this call to to the remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus is something that we do so often that you might even... Think it's, well, that's just what pastor does. We actually call your attention to it more particularly each time we gather for communion. Remember what the Lord suffered. Isaiah 53 explains it so well. But as we come today, it is because Jesus died and because he rose again and because he actually accomplished something in his death. I want to to remind you the purpose for which he died. He didn't die just to set a good example because then all of us would just follow that example and die. Even though we're crucified with Christ, it doesn't stop there. He says, nevertheless, I live. Galatians 2.20. Now, think about that. The death and the suffering, all of the stuff that Jesus went through so that we might be able to live. In the beginning of chapter 3 of Colossians, if I read it for you, it says uh, a familiar verse. If you have then been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. I mean, there is a whole point of this text and why I'm preaching through Colossians is that there is this parallel. We understand the sacrifice that Christ made. You can read about more of that in chapter 1, and we may do that in a few moments. But we're here to, un- to, to unpack what he accomplished by his death burial, and resurrection. He changed everything. Because rising from the dead, and we are united to Christ, we rise with him, everything changes. And if you have your uh, notes in front of you, you're going to be able to see that, that on this Memorial Day, there are some, it's an interesting relationship that's taken into place. Uh, I, I'm basically wanting, for the sake of, of, of the sermon today, is to go through these verses. And I have them highlighted for you in the text. It is verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And uh, when you you look at those, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it while you're praying with thanksgiving. And then he oddly says, and I'm repeating this for you in verses uh, 3 to 6, at the same time that you're continuing in prayer, he says, remember us. Pray for us, he's saying, and pray that two things would happen, that God may open up a door for the word, and secondly, that I may make it clear when I have that opportunity to speak. Now, he actually says it here, that God would open up a door so that that door, uh, that opportunity is so that I might be able to, or, or that the mystery of Christ might be explained, He says this mystery is pretty important, and he says it's so important that I have to do it. And if you look at that, the last part of that verse, he says, "This is why I'm in prison right now." Now, as I keep going through this passage, he says, "I also want you to pray not only that the door opens up, but that when I walk through that door, that I'll explain things clearly." This is what I ought to do. This is I'm a a messenger. I'm a sent one from Jesus. I need to be able to speak it clearly. And then he looks at the crowd, if you can just envision it. He says, this is, uh, and you can see it here, the shift is from the I to the you. And in that verse 5, he says, you walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. He says, let your speech always be gracious, and that the things that come out of your mouth, they would be seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, having put that in front of you today, uh, I'm explaining a few things. First, I want to tackle the, uh, if you have it in front of you, I want you to consider the seven affected relationships uh, that are are changed because you're in Christ. Uh, It's just basically, it's a quick list and an explanation of that list. Then secondly, after we do that, I want you to consider the five restraints that are expected from those that are now in Christ. This is the heart of the text. This is something that you'll be able to walk away and say, oh, it should convict us all. But thirdly, I want to consider three insights regarding these outsiders because it's a term that we're not familiar with. Okay, And also, I have to explain it right now, too, is that if you, if you open up your Bibles and start studying in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Colossians, guess what happens? You're already in the application section of the book. So, if you read the application improperly, some of you may conclude that in order to be saved, that you just need to do these things and everything will be fine with God. Eh, that's not how it works. Okay. You need to get the equation of salvation right. And, and Paul says it to the church at Ephesus very well, which is a parallel passage, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, lest anyone would be able to boast. It's not anything you and I do. It's what God starts in us, Philippians 1, 6, which is also another parallel text. When the apostle Paul was writing this, he was in prison. He was writing it to a couple of the, several of these churches. Uh, the one Ephesus, which is along the coast, but the one that we're focused on is the one on the interior, about hundred miles to the east. And uh, that little town of Colossae is so small that right now it's just a historical tell. Nobody lives there anymore. More people are interested in going to Laodicea, which is about 11 miles away, because uh, Paul, or, or excuse me, God, John mentions that as one of the churches in the book of Revelation, chapter three. Laodicea is a lot more popular, and it's more of a tourist site now. But Colossae was a place not far from this river down in this valley area in Turkey, and none of us would ever know about it, except God established a church there. God sent an apostle. He went in there. He spent some time with them. And there were many converts, and they set up the church. And so then there was an itinerant pastor that was left there, and, and the communication kept going to Paul even while he was in prison. And it was in prison with one of these communications that the Holy Spirit put on his heart to write the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians... Give you a lot of doctrine at the beginning, the first two chapters, a lot of insights, and then the application of those insights follow chapters three and chapter four. Now, if we're looking at chapter four, now you get the context of this list. The Apostle Paul in chapter one has told us that Jesus is the radiance of God, that he is like a replica. In fact, the text would say he's an icon of God. When you see Jesus, you've begun to see the fullness of God, the Trinity. And then as he goes on and explains some of that, he goes at the bottom of chapter 1, he says, it is my privilege to tell all of you guys about the mystery. Now, hope, hopefully some of you are thinking, hmm, mystery. Well, a mystery is simply something that's been hidden that's finally being revealed. You know, it's like the proverbial, the Wizard of Oz, what's behind the curtain, you know, when you're standing out there, and, and my wife loves that movie, The Wizard of Oz, uh, you know, all that stuff with the fire and the, who sent you? All that kind of stuff, if you remember the movie. Uh, and then finally, the little dog pulls back the curtain and says, ah, the mystery's solved. We know that somebody was pulling all the strings. Now, there was a mystery that the Apostle Paul went and explained. And he ends up telling the people that he's been preaching to when he was at their church, when he established the church as a church planter. That he told them these things, but it seemed like they forgot. On Memorial Day, it's important to remember. I want us all to remember that there was a mystery that the Apostle Paul was given the privilege of revealing. This mystery in hear the drumbo in Christ. Up to this point, people didn't understand what it means to be in Christ. Do you know what it means to be in Christ? (laughs) I pray you do. Because if you're not in Christ, then you're outside. Now, I set the standard here is that the apostle is writing to this church. He's writing it to people like you and like me. And when the people got it, they're drinking it all in and they're taking it in. And he's explained to them, hey, this mystery about a union with Christ, that we are united to Jesus. where He's the head and we're the body. And Jesus is united in the flesh and in the spirit because he is divine and he is also fully man." Fully God and fully man, totally united. And then another union part of the mystery is that Jesus is included in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So you have these three unities. And the apostle, Paul says, I, let me explain them to you. This is the mystery that people didn't understand. Because before Jesus came, before he died on the cross, before he was the one who sacrificed all, many people could never grasp this. In fact, in the book of Mark, it says that God actually hid it from them even when Jesus was on the earth. He spoke in parables so they would hear but not understand. Now the mystery, the curtain is being pulled back. The apostle Paul says, let me tell you what it is. And he says, you are united to God. That's just too amazing. Now, it doesn't make you God. It makes you fully dependent on Christ connecting you to God now when Jesus comes into your heart or as we like to say sometimes when Christ comes into you or you get included into the body of Christ there's a lot of ways of expressing that union but behold all things become new the apostle writes to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says that when you're in Christ everything's changed Or like um, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, remember, with Christ, nevertheless now I live. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ is living through us. And so it's really interesting, all of this union. Now, the application of all that doctrine of being united to Christ comes in, uh, in chapter three with These relationships. So, if you're following along, there are seven relationships that are granted here, uh, and it's kind of interesting that these seven are set before you. I want to just read you the list, and if you uh, if you can see it, it's it's pretty crystal clear. This list. Um, There is there is the obvious ones where I would begin with the wife. Okay, the second one that you're going to find is the husband. The third one you hear about is children. The next one you hear about is the father with an implication for mom there too. If you look at the next one, you'll find in the beginning of chapter uh, four, it talks about masters. I'm just calling them the boss. And then in order to be the the employer, there's always going to be the employed. Uh, Some might say that this is the slaves, but uh, these are the people that do the work. Those are six of the relationships. We've been marching through these relationships about wives and husbands, the fact that you can't have a wife without a husband. You can't have a husband without a wife. Uh, You can't really have fathers and mothers unless you've got some kind of offspring. So you get those. And you also see the symbiotic relationship between people that, that are the employers and the people who are being employed, the people that are the bosses and the people that do the work. But there's seven relationships. And the seventh relationship is the one we're looking at today, which is the outsiders. It's interesting. What kind of relationship do you have with outsiders? Now, uh, I told you that that was the interesting list, but let me go through and show you from that list some interesting broad watercolor pictures. Uh, first, you're going to see how the roles, are, uh, the roles are reaffirmed, the responsibilities are clarified, and the restraints are expected. When you go through this list, clearly you can see that the family unit is in mind. The family unit is there, and he says that there should be a husband and a wife. They're the core. And then from that, there's going to be children, and, the, and there's a responsibility to train those children. Okay, so you can see these roles. They're not made by man. They're roles that God set up. And there's a couple of other things that you find in here, is that the family unit not only has these roles, but there also is responsibilities. So when we list who these people are, part of their role is to do something responsibly. Okay? And, uh, and so you find out that wives and husbands are supposed to have a symbiotic, happy relationship. Have you found that to be true? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, don't be harsh with your wife, but love her. It sounds a whole lot easier. I hadn't, didn't have to drink any water today. I think some of you are understanding that's the way God designed it. That's the responsibility that you have. And then we're going to get to children next week, and we're going to see the responsibility that your children have, but also the responsibility that the parents have towards the children. And then the following week after that, we're going to end up looking at the, the role that bosses play with their people. But, and, and we'll get into that. Because as Christians, when you are united to Christ, it has an effect on all of those relationships. But this last one, the restraints. There are certain things that are expected of you. And if you have your Bibles here, you can clearly see in the text that we're reading, uh, this is... I find it to be very interesting, uh, to say the least, and that is that uh, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time in verse 5, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, when I give you the context of these seven relationships, now you can see how important this idea of the outsiders is. Of all the things that the apostle could have written about to the people that were in Colossae, he says, hey, everybody knows about moms and dad. Everybody knows about children and parents. Everybody knows that you got a boss and you got to do the work. But but most people don't know about the relationship with outsiders. So there's five warnings. And so if you're following along with me, it's quite interesting that the apostles, uh, his lived experience, those words are pretty popular today. My lived experience. Okay? Some people think that that trumps truth. It doesn't. Just because you feel it and just because you have a perspective, it doesn't make it right, nor does it make it true. Okay? But when Paul was telling about what he's experienced, how he dealt with the outsiders, it is it is quite interesting because uh, he 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 wants you to see how it was with him. Because if you look at the verses that are in front of you, and I have them right here for us, uh, the, the Bible says that that he says um, in verse 3, or I guess I'll start in verse 2. When he's looking at the crowd that he's writing to, I, I say looking at them, he's got them in mind. He says, you guys over in Colossae, you church members and regular attenders, he says, I want you to keep praying. Okay, what is prayer? It's talking to God. So he's looking at the crowd in his mind and he says, look, one of the best things you can do is spend time talking to the Lord. It it matches what Jesus said, that his house should be called a house of prayer and not a den of thieves. Okay, so God's people ought to be praying people. And so he says, when you're praying, you ought to make sure that you're not just asking for everything. But he says, be thankful for stuff. And in order to be thankful, and at Thanksgiving we always tell you to do this too, you have to count your blessings. So in order to have this kind of prayer time, you ought to be looking over your life and say, wow, thank you God for this. Thank you God for this. Thank you God for this. In a sense, that's what when we brought Mark up here just a few moments ago, uh, I put it, put the microphone in front of him and I said, what are you thankful for? If I did that to you, what would come out of your mouth? I was glad he didn't say he's thankful that he's leaving. Now, when you think through these kind of things, though, he says, you you look back and you say, I've been blessed. And that's one of the things that he says as Christians recognize this. You're in Christ. And when you're talking to God, make sure it's not just a gimme, 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 gimme list, but it's a thank you list. Okay, then he goes on to say, and while you're talking to God, make sure you intercede for us. And he's basically talking about the the people who are preaching, the people who are doing the mission work, who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he says, pray for us, pray for me. And then he asks two things. If you look at the Greek construction, there's two main points. He says that there may be an open door. And secondly, that when the door opens, this is at the, verse four, that when that door opens, I would speak properly. I pray for that all the time, too. I usually pray that God will give us uh, open doors, that we'd be able to find ways to talk about Jesus. Did you notice on the back of the bulletin, one of the ways is to, is to talk about dinosaurs? Okay, dinosaurs connected to Bible school, Bible school connected to the Bible, the Bible's connected to the Gospels, the Bible's, connect, or the Bible's connected to Jesus. We're going to get to tell people about Jesus by telling them about the dinosaurs, God's amazing animals. And we're going to tell them about if the rocks will even cry out if we hold our peace. They're going to tell us that God made this world and that God's got a purpose in making this world. It's so that Jesus would come and to be able to save us from our sins. Do you see how how Paul was looking for open doors to be able to take the gospel where it hadn't been before? And so he says, pray that God would open up these doors. And and, and interestingly enough, to declare... Uh, please help me out here. If you're looking at verse three, he says, The door should be open for the word to declare what? <sighs> Do you see that even though he spent chapter one and chapter two about the mystery which is in? Okay, you guys are getting it. He is so excited about it that now he's saying to you guys an application of the scriptures, since you are now in Christ, pray that God will open up more doors so I can go and tell them about the mystery that they can be in Christ. You could tell he's pretty excited about this, right? Okay, he says, pray that this door would open and when the door opens and I'm gonna tell them this mystery, I wanna be able to communicate and that's one of the reasons why we use that as our mantra here at the church. Communication is not just declaration. Declaration is like when the governor says, this is what you're going to do. Hey, it doesn't matter whether you heard it or not. This is what it was declared. Okay? Communication is something that's transmitted and is received. When the apostle is writing here, he says, I want to be able to speak in a way that I ought to speak so that the people hearing me will hear me. It's really quite interesting. He says, this is how I'm working towards outsiders. I'm praying that God will give me opportunities to meet them and to be able to speak with them in a way that communicates the mystery of the gospel. That's Paul's. Now, after he gives his life lived experience, now he goes and he gives us these five edifications things that God told him to write to the church at Colossae, and I believe they're applicable to all of us. The first one is in verse 5, and that is kind of interesting there where he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Now, this is the first, uh, as I would say, this is the first thing that he's trying to uh, help them to be restrained. He says, don't just go crazy when you go see outsiders. He says, walk in, help me out, Okay, when you're going to talk to people who are outsiders, you should talk with wisdom. Okay? It's beautiful. God doesn't want you to be a fool because a fool says there is no God. A wise person, if you go to uh, Proverbs 1, the, the wise one begins with God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so that's why if you're going to approach people who are outsiders, then you need to be able to grasp the importance of not being foolish in how you do it. I I was fascinated with it. Wisdom for the moment. Uh, When I was visiting, uh, Christian is thinking about going to this uh, fellows program, and we sat in on an ethics class when we were visiting, and uh, they went through a list of seven things that you do when you encounter somebody. You know, ethical procedures. But I was disappointed on this one because they, they had a wise way, but they didn't pursue God. The person teaching the class didn't say, oh, ask God about getting wisdom. Because I believe that when you have to exercise wisdom, when you're facing with somebody who is an outsider, and I'll get to that in just a moment, you've got to discern whether you're supposed to be a prophet, a priest, or a king. Remember, I'm a tri-perspectival guy, and I believe that the way that we're going to approach people is either tell them, like a prophet, thus says the Lord. Sometimes that's a picture of the finger pointing, just like Nathan did to King David: you're the man. That's sometimes hard, hard to swallow if you're the receiver of that kind of communication. But that's what a prophet does. He speaks the truth, thus says the Lord. Not many people like that. Secondly is the priest. More people like the priest. If you were to go and travel to Israel back in the old days and, and make your way to Jerusalem back before Jesus' time, you would go and you would look for a priest. And you'd want a good one. You'd know him by name, and he would show you how to do things, how to pray, how to put your hand on the head of the animal that you were about to kill or to sacrifice. I mean, he would teach you all these things, and he would know some of the issues of your heart. Most of the time, they're pretty tender guys, and maybe that's what God would call you to do towards an outsider, is to pray with them, to counsel them, to come alongside of them. Now, if God calls you to be a king, which is not usually very popular either, because kings get you to do things that you don't want to do. How many of you pay taxes? How many of you want to pay taxes? Okay. The reason you do it is because somebody else is out there, and they said this is the way it's supposed to be done. And ironically, I'm even teaching my kids to pay taxes. Even that was the question that said the, 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 the uh, people trying to trick Jesus, they asked the same question. Do you now have to pay taxes, or are we free from all that stuff? Do we not have to listen to them anymore? And, and Jesus said it real well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Now, this walk in wisdom is something that we cannot dismiss. We have to discern God's agenda. What is actually going on when we're dealing with outsiders? The second thing that he says in warning is practice godly conduct. Now, this could have been first, but I wanted to make sure that you understood that he says There's supposed to be wisdom that you get. Wisdom is something inside your brain. It helps to influence the decisions that you're going to make. But secondly, I have to go back to the precursor or the prerequisite. If you look there in verse two, if you have your Bibles open, you're going to see, he says, continue doing what? Continue your fellowship with God during all this stuff. And if you go back a little bit further, you're going to find that our text spells it out, that if you've been, uh, this is beginning of chapter 3. I'll just read it for you, and I'll, I'll, I'll help give you the commentary. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, or if you've already been mysteriously united to Christ, so that you've died with him and you've been raised with him, then he says, your attention is not on earthly things, but it's on the heavenly things. Seek those things that are above where Christ is. Because remember, he ascended on high, and that's that he's preparing a place for us, John chapter 14, verse 6. And he says, Set your mind on those things, verse 2 of Colossians 3. Isn't it neat? This is where you begin to realize, he says, And then when you set your mind on those things, then your conduct interestingly flows, because he says in verse 7, And you used to walk a different way. Let me read it to you. In these things you once walked when you were living in them, but now they've been put away. Pastor, I don't remember that list. I was hoping you'd say that. If you look there at verse 5, he says, these are the things that you used to live in before you were in Christ, before you were united to the Godhead. He said, you used to do sexual immorality. You used to do impurity. You used to do evil passions and evil desires, and you used to be very covetous. You used to have idols of all kinds of things, things that were more important to you than your Creator." And then he said, on top of that, you had some bad attitudes. He says in verse 8, you were angry, you had lots of wrath, you were full of malice, and you were quick to slander other people, and your tongue even was used for obscene talk. Yes, it even included lying. Hey, I just had to get that in there. Don't you love that list? It just makes you feel so wonderful. Only... If you see that as something that's put away. As I preach this text, this does not make you a Christian if these things are put away. No, when I was preaching this text, I was showing that it was because God's in you that these things need to be put away. They are no longer supposed to be given time. You're supposed to be walking in wisdom and even about your own self, even before you deal with the outsiders, you used to have these things and now they're gone. Behold, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. This is not something that I should have to repeat every week to remind you to be sexually pure and to not have evil desires or to have idolatry. I shouldn't have to come to you and sit down in counseling and say, stop being angry, don't have wrath for everybody, Uh, don't have malice and don't slander everyone. I mean, if you think about this, we probably do need help because our union with Christ doesn't get severed, but many times we end up leaning on our own understanding and falling back into the patterns that we had B.C., before Christ was in us. Now, when I, when I go a little further here, you can see that this practice of godly conduct, you need to be able to say that do as I do, not just do as I say, when you're dealing with outsiders. It, isn't it the worst thing when you turn on the news and somebody tells you, uh, let me just use the illustration that was not too long ago. There used to be commentators on some of the stations that said, they're not wearing a mask. They're not wearing a mask. And then you would be able to see somebody taking a picture of them not wearing a mask in some other public setting. See, the hypocrisy drives people crazy. And you see, even among Christians, when we're dealing with outsiders, make sure life matches up. With, I mean, your words match up with what you do. Now, the third thing on here to be, uh, be on guard about is in verse 5. Verse 5b, five he says, uh, make the best use of the time. Make the best use of your time. Do you know why? Because time is precious. Time is more valuable than gold. How many of you would love to be able to capture an extra day each week? How many of you would like to have another uh, three or four years of teenager status? Wait, okay, maybe not that. Maybe you would like 20 status. <laughs> no. Uh, if you think about this, time is an interesting commodity. One of my uh, projects I've been working on is, is to look at the 168 hours you have in a week. How many of you have 169? How many of you have 167? Do you know that even Bill Gates and even Warren Buffett and whoever else, uh, whoever runs Facebook, whoever runs all those mega million, uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, all these guys, do you know how many hours they have per week? The same amount as you do. Time is a great commodity. And the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, watch your time. When he writes to the, to the To the Christians in Ephesus at the same time in the parallel book in chapter 5 over there, he says, redeem the time because the days are evil. Now, the whole point there is don't waste your time. And there's other passages in the New Testament that sometimes says, clean off the dust off your feet and keep going. Because when you're dealing with some outsiders, they're not going to listen to you. It's a big waste of time. And yet to some outsiders, God says, you got to go and do it. No matter whether you want to or not, you can talk to some guy named Jonah. Jonah ended up talking to some outsiders that were living in Nineveh, and it was the last thing on his bucket list to do. He never wanted to do that. If it would have been up to him, he would have totally erased it because he tried. There's a lot of us who don't make the best use of our time. And then this is in the context of dealing with outsiders. Now, I'm quickly going to move through. So that was the third one, guard your limited time. Fourth uh, is, is, is the uh, one in verse six, where he says, discipline your tongue. If you, if you look there, after he says, watch your time, make sure you don't waste your time. He says, let what you say, what comes out of your mouth, let it be special. Now, does he tell you to tell the truth? Does the Bible ever tell you to lie? Come on, this is not a trick question. The only time that you could ever tell a deception is in wartime ethics, like Rahab telling the people that the spies had already left. Okay, that was counted for righteousness. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, She was in wartime ethics. But otherwise, we're truth tellers. So when he says to the the, uh, people in Colossae, he says, when you speak to the outsiders, let what comes out of your mouth be gracious. It still needs to be true, but let it be gracious. And then he puts that caveat on there that it's seasoned. How many of you have seasoned tongues? Some of you may have scar tissue on your tongues. I remember hearing about that. I thought that was quite an analogy. When things that have come out of that sharp sword, I mean, because the scriptures tell us in, in James and, and elsewhere is that the tongue is like an, a fire. It's, it's like a sword that can cut. There's a lot of things that the tongue can do to wound. And so when you are dealing with outsiders, because you're in Christ, because you're connected to the Trinity, you bear on your body the, the, the title, Christian, Christ in me. He says, what comes out of your mouth matters. Now, what is, why didn't he use another word like legal? You know, why did he say, let your speech be with grace? Well, do you know what grace is? Yes, it's somebody's first name. But grace, in the big theological terms, is unmerited favor. Now, I always explain it, and you've heard it a few times, and I repeat it again because you need to hear. Grace doesn't make any sense unless you understand Justice. And right now, our world doesn't understand justice when they put words in front of it. Social justice, racial justice, all those things are not justice. Justice is when you get what you deserve. God is the only one that is just. He is holy and just. Now, justice is getting what you deserve. And so, grace is when you don't get what you deserve. Now, I always put mercy in the middle there where you don't, uh, he says, justice is getting what you deserve, mercy is when you don't get what you deserve, and grace is getting something that you don't deserve in its place. And it's really cool when you digest that. Instead of getting what you deserve by what comes out of your mouth, you get something that you need. You get a gift. So when we're dealing with outsiders, when we're dealing with people, you're not supposed to give them what they deserve, which would be justice. You give them words of grace, which is giving them something they don't deserve. Sometimes that's kindness. Sometimes that's patience. Sometimes, well, let me go through the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, tenderness, goodness. Do you understand what I'm talking about? that grace is what the Holy Spirit does to us so that what comes out of our mouth is evidence of what's inside of us. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if the stuff that comes out of your mouth is like what comes out of a volcano, shame on you. You're not supposed to burn people up or devour them. And this is why he says, when you're dealing with outsiders, discipline your tongue. Now, if you go to to the fifth warning there in 6B, if you have your Bibles open, you can see, he says, uh, so that you should be seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer every man. This is something that most of us are not prepared to do, is to act instead of react. Now, pastor, what do you mean by that? If you're going to act, and I, I use this from a drama analogy, You know, I've been in several dramas. I like being dramatic. Um, But if you're in a drama, like uh, once I was uh, in Philip Nolan, The Man Without a Country. Uh, There was another, there's several other plays. But when you get to be the lead character or you're being one of the main characters, you learn your lines. Why do you learn your lines? Because other people have lines too and they're waiting to be able to come in at the right time when your line is done because you're telling a story. In order to do a drama very well, what has to happen? Preparation. In high school, those were some of the best times. We would be able to get out of class, and we'd go up to the stage, and we'd have those costumes on. I mean, I went to a legalistic school where you couldn't wear jeans, but for the drama, I got to wear jeans. How cool that was as as a teenager. You know, I got to break the rules legally, you know you see the inconsistency of all the rules when you can do that? But here's the point, is that if you are prepared, then you know what the script says. Now, if you're ad-libbing, that's a whole different thing. But in this particular text, the Apostle Paul is telling the people at, at, at Colossae, he says, Be ready, know your script. You need to know the things so that when you're asked, when your time comes, when the divine opportunity opens to you, when the door of opportunity is for you, that what comes out of your mouth is is what you ought to say as well as just like for me, as the apostle just said two verses earlier. When I get that open door, what comes out is what God intended to be delivered. You just become a pipe, a conduit. That the truth, the gospel, the mystery that we're united to Christ flows out of us because that's what's in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I could take way too much time, so I'm going to finish up with our last point in the sermon, which is consider three insights about these outsiders. Now, in this day and age when everybody's being accused of being a racist or everybody's being a bigot, uh, I mean, my goodness, this was happening in, in Rehoboth back in 2013, I was trying to preach at the beach. We're going to do that, Lord willing, in July and August, uh, 830 services. I want to invite the world to come. But back in those days, I was just simply trying to preach there, and they, they told me, no, you can't. They wanted to shut us up. They, they, they felt like um, they were treating me like an outsider. They said, oh, you're a nice guy, but we're not welcoming anybody that speaks about that, uh, that righteousness at the bandstand. They said church and state are separate and we're going to intend to keep it that way because otherwise there'll be bad consequences. I was rejected. I was left out as an outsider. I understood some of these things. But when you understand what it means when he uses the term outsider, there's all these other relationships. And this is where I'll wrap it up in saying that an outsider is somebody that's not inside. Either you're in Christ or you're not in Christ. So number one, you understand that these are not Christians. The second thing you could say is that being outside is also outside the body of Christ. That's one of the reasons why I encourage all of you to be numbered with the church. Why? Because if you're in Christ, then you're a part of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is called the ecclesia, which is the called-out ones from the world. So we're outsiders from the world because we're called into what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stop its growth. I'm going to accomplish my purposes with my church. So we're called out into this new community and in this new community, everyone in that community is in Christ and Christ is in us. And because we're united with Christ, and he is connected with the Father, Son, or Father and Spirit, there is a unity that we have. And so now when we deal with this world, those who are not yet in Christ, those who are outsiders, and to use another analogy, it's like Noah in the boat. If you're not in the boat, then you're drowned. Either in Christ, and he is your ark, that when the wrath of God is poured out, you're spared. If you're not in Christ, then to be an outsider is bad. So that's the emphasis of what the outsiders are. Three insights I want to be able to share. Three quick things. One is we were all outsiders. How many of you were born a Christian? I'm so glad I didn't see any hands. You would have been deceived. We were born in sins and trespasses. We, were con- we have the genes of Adam and Eve. Yes, we're not descendants of monkeys and apes. Uh, we are definitely in the lineage of Adam and Eve, and also of Noah and one of his kids. Now, when you think through that, we were all outsiders, so that means we all understand what it means to be an outsider. And it does not you can't go around and say, oh, that's so unfair. No, we all were. Before Christ, we are all outsiders of Christ. Secondly, the mystery reveals, explained how we became insiders. When you understand what Paul was saying in chapter 1 and chapter 2, I'm not going to dive into it deep right now, but I want you to read it. Wow, he thanks the Father for delivering us from this evil kingdom and putting us into the kingdom of Christ. And then what Christ did, that he nailed it all to the cross. Chapter 1, I think, verse 29. It's so amazing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when you get all of that stuff, that is how we became insiders. We who were once aliens, once we were outsiders, and I can bring up a lot of verses to be able to show it to you, but you can look for yourself. Uh, We were once dead in sins and trespasses, and God has made us alive. He's brought us in Christ, and he's also adopted us into his family, and that's why we can proudly say we are Christ followers or Christians as they were first known in Antioch. Now, that's the second insight, is that the mystery of the gospel explains how we were outsiders becoming insiders. Thirdly, is outsiders are not outside of all of God's blessing. And this connects us with Memorial Day. Uh, I quickly want to just highlight the first one. Just because you're an outsider, you're not oblivious to God's blessing in humanity. The first point there is humanity. Every person that's an outsider is no different from people who are insiders. We're human. We're not a separate race. There isn't somebody from Mars and somebody from Venus. We're all of one kindred spirit. We're all, uh, we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. So humanity, all the benefits that come to living this life is pretty fascinating. In fact, life itself is pretty cool. Secondly, you are privileged in this lifetime to experience order. If you go to Romans chapter 3, when Paul wrote to the church, to the believers there in Rome, he explained it a little bit more. Why? Because that was the capital. All the government people and officials were all there. And so chapter 13, he explains that, hey, God says, I put order into this world so you don't have to live in chaos. Let me tell you, if you get rid of all the police and you get rid of all the restraints, there's chaos. There's chaos. God says that, the, that these leaders are there to keep order, to bring about a, a society, and that's what we would call citizenship. We, we are a family living among families, and that's a blessing that we can have. That's why it says in, in one of our founding documents in the U.S., to ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and promote the general welfare, secure these blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our children. It's pretty cool about America's heritage. That's one of the reasons why I'm not ashamed to be able to play those those battle hymns and those different things, because these are pictures of the gospel at work, that we would have a peaceful and quiet life, as 2 Timothy 2 2 talks about. Uh, Thirdly, there are people in this world that deserve honor. I already quoted for you when it came to taxes, give unto taxes where taxes are due. But he also says, honor to whom honor is due. And that includes the public officials. It includes those who have served in the military. And that is one of the reasons why it was something that I applauded when I saw the almost 20 people standing up as part of your branches of service were mentioned. Honor to where honor is due. And in many ways, we remember that when you serve, you don't know if you're going to end up giving your life. But you may. And that cause would be for my liberty, for my freedom. And that's something that we want to cherish. The fourth thing in this, this, this blessings to outsiders is that there's hope. That when you, when, you, when you take the gospel to the ends of the earth, I'm standing up here, I'm on Facebook, I'm sure I'm on some video. somebody listening to me now and, and maybe three months from now, somebody listening back. When you hear this message, yes, it's from that bald guy that's standing up in front of the church, but he's offering a message of hope, hope. Yes, you may be an outsider. But to as many as received him, to them he gives the power to be called the children of God." John chapter one, verse 14. He came into his own, his own received him not, but there were those who did receive him. And that's why when you hear John 3:16, "For God, the triune God, he loved so much that he did something to remedy us from this awful situation we're in. We have a fallen nature and we're condemned to hell. He sent his only begotten son that whosoever should rest in what he did on Calvary's cross should not perish, but have everlasting life. In Christ changes everything. It changes all of the relationships. And I pray that as you take on this week, No matter where you are, that you'll remember the counsel that the Apostle Paul says. Look for those doors of opportunity, whether it's with your children, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with your parents, whether it's with your neighbors, whether it's with your boss, whether it's with your fellow employees, whether it's with your governor, whether it's with your president, whether it's with your elected officials, whether it's with the lifeguard, or whether it's with the person that cut you off while you're driving through this awful traffic. Let your speech be with grace. May you know how to answer every man. If you could, if the Lord gives you the opportunity to explain that mystery, in order to be united to Christ, our sins had to be paid for so that the wrath of God would not be upon us, and the righteousness of Christ had to be imputed to us. We'll pick this up later. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for the word of God. It is encouraging. It is a message of hope. And Lord, as the Apostle Paul tries to explain this to the, to the crowd in Colossae, Lord, I pray that we would respond similarly and rejoice and be excited. Lord, I pray that you'll, look, you'll, you'll have our eyes open to the doors of opportunity that will open so we can reach people who have never been reached. Because the goal of the gospel is not to keep it in ourselves, but it is to take it to the ends of the earth. For in so doing, the wonders of God's grace in Christ Jesus are made known. In whose name I pray.